Well, I do hope you all had a blessed and joyful Christmas celebration with your families. I think I'm still celebrating Christmas, at least in terms of the benefit of the of the gifts that I've received. And um, I think it's been a, a busy time, I think, for a lot of us. And we do have some folks away from us uh, this Lord's Day, particularly uh, the Brookses have gone out to Ohio to be with Paul and Rebecca. I think they're also anticipating uh, paying a visit to Bob and Mary and Bryant on their way back. Or um, Anyway, uh, we don't have piano accompaniment this morning, so our, our praise should be all the more um, um, lifted up in, in volume. It's one of the reasons perhaps you, you heard me sing a little bit louder than normal, <laughs> holy, holy, holy. But you know, there's another reason I sung loudly this morning. Anybody know why it would be a justifiable thing to sing God's praises loudly? Um, Tony mentioned he and his family uh, attended a, a Christmas pageant at one of the churches that their granddaughter was involved in, and they heard volume, all right? <laughs> Amplification. It was, uh, you know, loud deafening music um, with uh, amplification so you got to bring in a whole load, cartload of, uh, of, of uh, uh, devices in order to <laughs> make that loud noise but it's actually the, the voices of God's people uh, that are descriptive of the, the sound of many waters that's found in the book of Revelation because in a real sense in the Bible the, the whole matter of the praises of God are to be sung loudly and it is an expression of the joy of the people who worship to sing the praises of the Lord, not just uh, whispering it, but shouting it. In fact, many of the uh, psalms that often are translated in terms of sing joyfully to the Lord is really to sing loudly to the Lord. That's what the Hebrew is actually calling us to do. And uh, the note of our, of, our, of our joy and our praise will be, will be evidenced in the volume in which we bring. Because that's expressive of at least something of the reality of our hearts when we sing loudly. You know, oftentimes when you need help, um, you just say, help me, help me. It's the little guy in the, the, the movie The Fly that said that. And who heard that? Well, <laughs> to really get help, you got to sing it loud. Help me, help me. And that's an expression of need. That's an expression of the reality that you actually do need help. Well, the expression of the reality of our praise should be noted in the way in which our voices are raised and then our, our songs are sung with, um, with um, joyful clarity and, and loudness and even volume that registers it. Registers it. Why am I saying all this? Well, I'm saying all this because, um, well, we have folks away. Um, perhaps you, like me, you're just recovering from the Christmas celebration. Um, I've been immersed, I mean, really immersed, my wife will tell you this, in the narratives of the birth of Christ in Matthew. And I haven't spent all the time I've wanted to spend in Romans. Uh, I could go into Romans, and I'm sure we'd get by well. But I thought it would be best uh, to have folks back with us. And I'll be done with um, the birth narratives after today. I'm hoping to speak this morning on um, the subject of Herod and the reaction of the Herod and the people of Jerusalem to the uh, birth of Jesus. And uh, 
then also the subsequent flight into Egypt and out of Egypt have I called my son and that strange passage that's from Jeremiah about Rachel weeping for her children. That's what we hope to do this morning. And then in the evening, I want to do um, the final part of that, which speaks of Jesus going to Galilee, taking his residence in, back in Nazareth, that it will be fulfilled what was spoken. Uh, he shall be called a Nazarene. And um, there's a sense in which all those passages that are quoted in Matthew chapter 2, and there's a number of them. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. I want to spend some time here, but I want to present to you a concern that I have just with respect to my own um, life as a Christian, my ministry as a teacher of the Word of God, and uh, coming into a new year, something I've always wanted, desired, and sought to further a bit in my life and ministry, um, the whole subject of biblical literacy, the whole subject of having people aware of the content of their Bibles, and just what that involves and really what that means. And I think there's a sharpening of my own understanding of really what's required in that. It's not just a question of having biblical passages at our, at our fingertips. It's not just an ability to say, oh, I recognize where that is. So you can uh, ace the, the Bible category or Old Testament category on Jeopardy. I mean, <laughs> you ever got on Jeopardy and they gave you those categories? Hopefully we'll all win a lot of money if that happens. Because we'll hopefully know those things. Because we're trying to be and seeking to be and actually coming to be a biblically literate people. But it's more than that that's entailed in the matter of biblical literacy. Because you notice I mentioned getting immersed in these birth narratives. And part of my immersion in these birth narratives is the fact that these narratives call us to be immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. Again, back in chapter 1 and verse 22, we have that first Reference And this comes after the genealogy of all those Old Testament characters, Jesus being son of David, son of Abraham, all of those things back in the Old Testament. You can't come and read Matthew's Gospel without reference to the Old Testament. If you're simply ignorant, if you're just picking up the reading in Matthew, uh, yeah, you're going to learn some things about Jesus, you can learn some things about his miracles, you can learn some things about his words. But to really understand it all, you, you really can't understand it as it's presented to us in the scriptures, if you only know the New Testament. And, you know, we live in a world in which lots of Christians love the New Testament, and not just the New Testament, they want the stuff in red. They want the stuff that highlights Jesus' words. And, you know, you can't really get Jesus' words, understand them in their proper meaning, without reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Because, you know, it's like the person who said, oh, I just hate the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is filled with a God of wrath and a God of judgment and a God, in their own estimation, of what they think the Old Testament teaches about God. I want the, Je- the God of Jesus, the God of the New Testament, who just calls us to love God and to love our neighbor. And what's wrong with that statement? Who can tell me what's wrong with that? What is totally inconsistent about a statement such as that? Thank you. And we ought to know that, shouldn't we? As, new, as, as biblical Christians, we should know when somebody says something like that, I don't want the God of the Old Testament, I want the God of Jesus who calls us to love God and to love our neighbor. They say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. When he says the great commandments of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he's quoting Deuteronomy. When he says you should love your neighbor as you love yourself, he's quoting Leviticus 19. 
And biblical literacy is able to detect those things. That we know our Bibles well enough, the content well enough, to know at least the fact that Jesus is stating those things. He's just not pulling it out of the air. He's not just bringing a new revelation. Jesus is the one who in Matthew chapter 5 says, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. And part of the fulfilling them is to bring them to a greater measure of comprehension, understanding, to where they're the basic components of our, of our understanding of, of the world. You know, people talk about biblical worldviews. And a lot of people, excuse me please, who talk about biblical worldviews, they really don't know their Bibles very well. What they're really talking about is the prejudice of having a conservative mindset that has a political agenda at hand. And that becomes for them a biblical worldview. Unless you hold these, these particulars, you don't have a biblical worldview. Just funny how it seems to reflect their, their politics more than the teaching of the Word of God. That's what they're advocating for. They're not advocating for a biblical worldview that's able to really detect biblical, uh, uh, the inconsistencies of the modern world in comparison to the biblical worldview, because we really have learned to speak the language of the Bible. Now, to speak the language of the Bible is more than just to know the words. It's more than just to know its content. Years ago, my wife and I received a letter from a young man who was the son of uh, our landlord in Germany. When I was in the military, we were in Germany and um, we lived in a home uh, with a, uh, uh, owned by a fellow named Heinz and his wife, Hannah-Laura. Hannah-Laura is no, no longer with us. We haven't seen Heinz in a few years, but often when they come to the States, they, do come to vi- they did come to visit us. Uh, I was the one that always told Heinz where to get the steak. That's why he valued me. Which places to go to get good steak? As he said, I don't come to see you. I come because you know where to get the steak. <laughs> what do you say to me? But anyway, his son um, wrote us a letter and he was looking to practice his English. He's learning English in his uh, school. And it was a very nice letter. But uh, you remember some of the parts where all of the instruction you receive in English in a course trying to tell you what la- what the, how to speak the, another language, a lot gets lost in translation <laughs> because we were, we were then told, I hope all of your problems are small and ridiculous. <laughs> no, he, he probably was thumbing through a, a, an English dictionary, finding ridiculous means, you know, no big deal. I hope all your problems are no big deal. But we don't, that's not the way we speak. That's not how the English language is spoken by people that know the English language from the fact that we know uh, at least the mindset and the, the way expressions are used in, in America. Of course, you know, we have our British friends and they have a completely different uh, use of the English language. And uh, I do believe it was, um, I think it was Mark Twain, although I remember when Ray was here, he, he, he didn't know if it was, uh, he used two other figures and it wasn't the ones that I've used. I've always thought it was either Mark Twain or the other one would be um, Oscar Wilde, uh, the playwright and uh, uh, the writer. Uh, either one of them said that America and Britain are two great nations separated by a common language. And uh, you kind of picked that up when Ray was talking to us, and he was speaking about um, his diary, I think, or something like that, or his journal, his journal. He's actually talking about his, his schedule, his daily schedule. 
And, you know, we think of a journal as something that you're writing in, so it was a little bit of confusion on that demo. Actually, it's scheduled with the word that we use here in America. Oh, all right, all right. You know, <laughs> we have those differences of uh, the way language is used. And so when we really speak about immersing ourselves in the in the, in, in the narrative in Scripture, in the thought world of Scripture, we're doing something more than just simply learning the language. We're just simply getting the facts. Um, I know when I was in school, uh, the exhortation was always, you got to get the language, you got to get the language, you got to learn the Hebrew, you got to learn the Greek, and that exhortation was laid before us, and it's a good exhortation. If you're going to be ministering the Word of God on a regular basis, you should know the original languages, you should be conversant with them, you should be able at least to use the resources that are going to give you the, the, the doorway into the, the language of Scripture and what the, the language of Scripture entails. But just because we know the language doesn't mean we know the thought patterns. It doesn't mean we know the images. It doesn't mean we know the, the way in which the Bible itself expresses itself to us as God's people. That really does take a bit of immersion of ourselves into the thought patterns of, of, of the scriptures. And, and that means not just defining words and not just in trying to uh, put things together sort of like a the patchwork quilt and you know just any way we see fit, but really asking the right questions about the things that the scriptures are saying to us. Because here in this birth narrative, the New Testament, again, again and again, we are confronted with these words such as verse 22 of chapter 1, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then in uh, chapter 2 and verse 5, um, so it is written by the prophet. And then a quotation, of course, uh, chapter 1 is a quotation from Isaiah 7.14. Uh, in uh, chapter 2 is a quotation from the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse uh, 2 or 3. And then um, in 2 and verse uh, 5, um, uh, 2 and verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And this quotation here is from uh, Hosea 11 and verse 1, out of Egypt have I called my son. And then in chapter 17, uh, chapter 2 and verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And, and, and it's interesting that the, the, the formula was, to was a little bit different in each one of those, those verses. I don't know if you, you noticed it. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. The Lord had spoken this through the prophet. Um, in uh, 2 and verse 5, For so it was written by the prophet. do not say the Lord had spoken it through the prophet, but that just the prophet spoke it. And then in um, 2.15, this was to fulfill, again, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And that's by far the most general way that Matthew introduces Old Testament prophecies. It took place not just to fulfill what the prophet had spoken, but what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. He's bringing the agency of the words back to God, and not just the prophet. Though sometimes it's just viewing it uh, as things that the prophet had spoken, uh, such as in 2.5. And then in um, 2.17, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And again, the Lord didn't speak this here. It says Jeremiah spoke it. And probably here it's distancing itself from the fact that uh, this seems to have to do in some way with Old Testament prophecy kind of connected with the, the heinous act of Herod in killing the children. It's not certainly anything part of God's will for um, <laughs> him to have done such a thing. Uh, this, he did it out of his own uh, wicked, uh, rage-filled uh, 
uh, savagely murderous heart. Um, but yet it goes back to the prophet Jeremiah and things that the prophet Jeremiah had said. And then the, uh, the uh, formula that's even uh, least specific is in 2.23 when it says, so what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. There's not even a specific prophet mentioned here. It's placed in the plural. The prophets have said something or another, like uh, he will be called a Nazarene, which you're going to see tonight. Uh, we just don't really know exactly what the reference is or just what the meaning is. and So it's kind of open-ended. There's some good, uh, there's some good suggestions that are made, and I'm going to provide you with those suggestions to underscore something about what it meant for Jesus to be called a Nazarene. We'll do that tonight. But um, my point is that there are different ways in which the New Testament um, introduces these prophecies, and then the prophecies themselves, you, you kind of scratch your head and you say, how does this connect? How does this connect? How in the world does Rachel weeping for her children, for instance, connect with the killing of the innocents in Bethlehem, the slaughtering of the male children of Bethlehem on the part of Herod? How, how does that, how does it relate? And, and you know, a lot of times we're not even aware ourselves in the language of the scriptures because we are in so many ways biblically illiterate as to how these, these quotations are presented to us. Uh, and we think, well, if the, if the prophet said it, it must be a strict prophecy. It's, you know, the Old Testament prophet looking forward into the future. Ah, what do I see in my, in, in my prophecy? I see Herod killing the babies in Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah sat down and wrote something about Rachel weeping for her children in reference to the slaughter of the, of the infants in, in Bethlehem. But that's not right. That couldn't be right. That's absurd. I think that Jeremiah is looking into the future and through some kind of a spyglass that is able to see the future, he sees what Herod has done. He didn't know who Herod was. He wouldn't have known what any of that meant. And certainly back in the context of Jeremiah 31, where that passage is found, it has a clear meaning. It has a clear meaning there. And so we have to learn what the language of the Bible is in a biblical way. And part of biblical literacy is that we're just moving away from any sensitivity at all to the way Scripture itself presents its own case to us. We're, because we're, we're just, we, we want quick answers. You know, we want to approach the Bible to find a place where it says something about, uh, you remember the hotels when you get the Gideon Bible and you open it up and in the front it said, you know, if you, uh, if you have problems with uh, Anxiety, yeah, here's the answer, here's, here's what you read. You have problems of fear, here's what you read. Yeah. Yeah, we want quick answers to our questions, right? And uh, the Gideon uh, uh, organization and all the good work that they do, um, unfortunately, at that point, they pander to what they think is to get people interested in the Bible. Find uh, quick answers to hard, hard questions. Find quick answers to difficult problems. Just uh, you know, take two scriptures and call me in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> a little doctor's prescription for all the things that ail us and that's how we want to see the Bible but you know you make the Bible into that it's not the Bible it's something that we've taken from the world of the Bible and poured it into our world that it, 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 everything's lost it, everything got lost in the translation to modern needs and we need to go back into the biblical world 
and try to understand, well, you know, what it meant then is is going to be the is going to be the, the the necessary information to understand what it means to us today. I mean, granted, we live in a different world with different concerns than the biblical world. We have to translate it into our language. We have to translate it into our own times and, and situations. We function not as a nation of Israel that comes with our animal offerings uh, to a temple and an altar. and uh, So a lot of things have, are different, but we have to go back and understand what are the metaphors, what are the, what are the images. You know, the book of Revelation is a book that's filled with Old Testament illusions, but not once is it ever quoted. But it's always calling to mind things about the Old Testament, and really that becomes the key to understanding what the book of Revelation is saying. I think that uh, I've read anywhere from four to 600 different allusions to the Old Testament found in the book of Revelation, but you don't have one single quote. But the quotations are not that the prophet's looking forward to these events. He's telling us, you're not going to understand the events here about Jesus without going back and seeing the way in which it was prepared for by not just the prophecies, yes, the prophecies, true, but also the prophecies as they portray the promises that God's given, as well as the patterns we call typology of the Old Testament has with respect to what God has done that gives us something of a forecast of what he may be doing in the future and how we figure out the meanings of these things in the context of the biblical worldview. So, anyway, my concern for the new year is to learn literacy, biblical literacy, and to help you along to, uh, 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 to learn it. You know, so that the next time I ask the question, um, what's wrong with this statement about uh, you know, not liking the Old Testament, but loving the God who, who calls us to love himself and our neighbor, you can say, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, we got Deuteronomy, we got Leviticus, we have a host of other biblical passages, you can be able to call those things to mind. You know, there are, uh, I've read other things about people who have come into a group of Christians and they've just begun to ask them questions that they, think they felt every Christian ought to know this. Every Christian ought to know this. And then we're met with just total silence on the part of the congregation. You know, we all know Jesus from the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does anybody know where that came from? Thank you. Psalm 22. Every hand should have come up. Every hand should have said, Psalm 22. Yeah, we know where that is. How about into your hands I've committed my spirit? A little, a little more difficult. Uh, that's also in the Psalms. It's in Psalm 31. It, there's a likelihood that Jesus himself was praying the Psalms when he was dying upon the cross. What, what else would a, a Jewish man do but call to mind the words of the Psalms? Especially as those first section of the book of Psalms are filled with the reality of lament in the face of opposition. How have my enemies increased? And that would have been right before our Lord's view. And he would have taken solace from the Psalms. Probably sang them as he was dying upon the cross. And those, he probably got to Psalm 22 at the point where the heavens were darkened. And he cried out in the words of the Psalm. It would have been a fitting way to express his own horror in the midst of the sense of abandonment. It would have been the very way he would found, find his relief as he, his sufferings were coming to the end. 
uh, taking a, a passage which in its own context is not really talking about dying. Into your hands I commit my spirit is not the prayer just before death. That's the prayer for daily living. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I commit this day to you, Lord. I commit myself to you, Lord. Take my hands and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. But, you know, you go back in the Old Testament, you see the context in which it was given. It's, it's, and, and then see how it was used in the New Testament, how it was used by Jesus. Um, so we want to be more biblically literate. We, I'm not saying we need to be scholars. We don't. But we need to be at least sensitive to the thought patterns of, of, of the Word of God. And at least to the place where we're asking ourselves the right questions. We're asking ourselves the right questions. I used to think, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I used to think when I came to the ministry I had all the answers. <laughs> then I figured out I didn't even know the right questions. And part of, I think, education, part of learning, almost anything, is, is learning to ask the right questions. And then seeking to find the right answers. And that's true in the Christian life as well. That's true in our knowledge of the Word of God. We need to be asking ourselves the right questions. Well, as I was doing the work of um, the birth narratives in my own study, um, my wife will tell you I came home and I said, I just don't know how, what I'm going to do with all this. There's just too much stuff here. There's just too much material. <laughs> There's just all these connections and relationships and I just don't know how I'm going to lay it out to the people in any way that's going to be anything but a jumbled mess, a bunch of confusion. Well, I hope I've made, at least in terms of the way I've hammered it out for the morning worship, something that makes sense, something that is sensible. But I thought it would take some time to maybe pick up some of the scattered ends, the, the remnants, the, the stuff I didn't use, the stuff I, I ha, I'm not able to bring into the morning message and maybe say something about that. And particularly with the uh, prophecy from Jeremiah, I thought maybe this is a good place to go, maybe to help us to understand what are the right questions to be asking in the face of a passage such as this. Let's just read the context, we'll read the quotation, and then um, we'll endeavor to understand what, uh, what, what's happening here. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. This is uh, 2.16. Okay, so I didn't say that. He killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So the wise men saw the star, traveled probably two years or so, to get to Jerusalem or to follow the star and uh, so it was at that point that he understood the birth of the baby. Uh, two years and under he went and he slaughtered him. He killed him. In his fury fury in his rage and his paranoia and all the things that entered into Herod's horrific reign uh, although he was a man who did a lot of uh, good things for the nation one would say. Uh, kind of reminds you of a Hitler-like person. Did a lot of great things. Made the, made the subways, uh, made the, the Autobahn, you know, made the uh, trains run on time. All the things people foolishly say about a man who was so, so brutal and had so much blood on his hands. Well, Herod built the temple. You know, Herod was a great architect, a great builder. He accomplished great things. Well, sometimes tyrants do that very thing. But then, in the slaughtering of the innocents, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Okay, you're reading the book of Matthew. You read this passage. 
What do you do first? What do you ask yourself first when you read this passage? What's the context in which it was said? I'm sorry? What was the context in which it was said in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament. Okay, you've got to find the Old Testament passage. This is a quotation from the Old Testament. He's citing Jeremiah. And the passage is Jeremiah 31. Let's go back to Jeremiah 31. Anybody just offhand know what Jeremiah 31, before you even get there, there's a name to the section, uh, chapter 30, 31, that's oftentimes given to this portion in the book of Jeremiah. Anybody know what it is? I mentioned it a couple of times in our studies in Jeremiah. I'm sorry? No, it does contain the promise of the new covenant in 30, verse 31. But it's in the context of the section in Jeremiah that's called the Book of Consolation. Okay. It's called the Book of Consolation. And, you know, you have this horrific verse in the midst of the Book of Consolation. And that's something you should keep in mind because that's not unimportant. But in this Book of Consolation, there is this call to the nation to understand the reality of a God whose love persists. That I've loved you with an everlasting love. It begins in uh, chapter 31 and verse 1. At that time declares Yahweh, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. And again, that's taken up in the promise of the new covenant. I will be a God to you and you will be my people. Thus says Yahweh, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. And the Lord appeared to him from far away. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you will be built, O virgin Israel. So this is a passage that's promising restoration. Again, in terms of the division we have made in Jeremiah's studies in the evenings, that the first 25 chapters really accord with that call of Jeremiah to um, pluck up, pull down, destroy, and overthrow. And then it says, uh, then in chapter 26 and forward, it's really that latter part to build and to plant. To build into plant. I think that's a way to conceive of what Jeremiah's book is about that's really, I think, true to form, is that you have the tearing down of the institutions of the nation, their pride and confidence in the temple, that's going to be destroyed. Their confidence that they are the people of God because of the covenant. Yeah, you're covenant breakers, and God's going to just, you know, destroy you with the curses of the covenant because you're covenant breakers. All the things that Israel was trusting in, God says, I'm destroying it. I'm pulling it down. There's going to be a complete uh, desolation of all of those things. But God's not just in the business of tearing things down. He then says he's going to build a plant. And the, the book of Consolation comes within that basic framework of Jeremiah's book of um, God restoring the nation. As in the context of the restoration of the nation, that you have this strange verse that's found in verse 15. Thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says Yahweh, keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares Yahweh. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's hope for your future, declares Yahweh. And your children shall come back to their own country. I've heard Ephraim grieving. You've disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For you are Yahweh my God. And after I turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, confounded. For the disgrace of my youth is Ephraim, my dear son. Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, do I remember him still? 
Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Now, in all those words that I just read, how does verse 15 fit in? How would you connect them to the rest of the section? Is there continuity or, or contrast? Let me ask you that. I mean, you have weeping, don't you? Lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. No comfort. She refuses to be comforted. They're no more. They're gone. They're destroyed. They've been exiled. No hope. You have that set of ideas? The verse 16, that says, The Lord, keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. For there's a reward for your work. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's hope for your future. Your own children will come back to their own country. Is it continuity or contrast? Contrast. Contrast. Is it a, a, a small contrast? No. It's a large, vivid contrast. Something's gone on here where weeping is spoken of that really ends up in joy. No weeping. And again, you have that note um, earlier on in the passage. I think I quoted this uh, um, in one of my posts on Facebook this week where um, I still find the, ex the exact words um, where, the, where, the, where the, the, the mourning of the people okay, um, Actually, my eyes not falling upon it. We go back and look at my Facebook post, and you're going to see there was another passage here in the in the media context, which um, which speaks of joy that follows mourning. Kind of reminds you of the psalm that says, "You have turned my mourning into dancing. You've taken my sackcloth. You've you've girded me with with kindness. So, Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever." God's taken the the mourning of the people away. Or you think of the other reference. I think it might be the same psalm. Uh, 31, I think it is, or 35, where it says, Though weeping prevail for the night, joy comes in the morning. God is the God who girds his people with joy, with gladness, with mirth, with, with thanksgiving, after a time of weeping. So whatever's going on here in Jeremiah, it's not the permanent state of things. And it's a state of things that lends itself to a joyful occurrence. Okay? Is that clear? But now let's look at the text itself. The voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because there are no more. Now, what are the things in this passage that you need to kind of delve into to, kind of, to get what's, what's happening? What are the things you need to know that you don't know? Why are they weeping? I mean, what's come about them? Why is who weeping? Um, well, all the people in Rama, the, the women for their children. Well, it's not women in, in, in general, it's Rachel in particular. It's Rachel. Rachel weeping for her children. And the voice is heard in Ramah. So you have to know what Ramah is, or Rama is, and you have to know what's Rachel's role 
in this whole thing? Why is she set, set forth to us? What, what is her particular um, mention uh, having to do with what's happening in this day of Jeremiah? Why Rachel? Why Ramah? So what do you do? Well, you can do a Google search. You can do something in a search engine of a Bible program. And you find dimensions of Rima and look up Rachel, right? Those are the two things, right? Well, I did that. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm paid to do. And what is my discovery with respect to Rama? Anybody know anything about Rama other than Jeremiah 31? There's a couple of mentions of Rama in interesting Places. The first one is in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. And this, is how, this is the way things really get interesting in Bible study. Where I come home and I say, oh, I can't believe what I saw today. <laughs> Never saw this before. This is incredible. Okay. You have um, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel. What do you know about Samuel? I'm sorry, not Samuel. That's Samuel. He took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. Whose head? Well, it's, um, it's Saul, in the previous context. He's anointing Saul. Saul is being anointed king. What do you can tell me about Saul, real quickly? First king in Israel, but was he to be the legitimate, true king after God's own heart? No, why? Wrong tribe, right? Saul was of which tribe? Benjamin. Benjamin. He was a Benjaminite. The ruler comes out of Judah, right? So Saul doesn't qualify along those respects, but the people wanted a king like all the nations, and Saul was taller than everybody else, and he was more impressive than anyone else, like all the nations. So Saul became the king of uh, all the nations. And here's being anointed, and uh, he's from Benjamin. Let me ask you real quickly. Benjamin have any relationship to Rachel? Uh, what's the relationship between Rachel and Benjamin? Hmm? Yeah, Rachel was the mother of Benjamin. Uh, how many children did Rachel have? Two. Two. What were their names? Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph and Benjamin. Okay. And uh, in terms of the tribes in Israel, Joseph was reckoned in what way? Yeah, Jacob uh, adopted the two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And uh, so the tribes in Israel that were traceable back to uh, Rachel were Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim is what the northern kingdom is called in chapter 31. So there's a connection with Rachel and Benjamin. There's a connection with Rachel and Ephraim. And the northern kingdom is called Ephraim in the context of chapter 31. So when you go back to 31, keep those things in mind, right? We've made, we've made some important connections here. Now, um, where was Rachel when she gave birth to Benjamin. Anybody remember where? You spoke about births in a particular place a few weeks back. That was... So we want to say Bethlehem? Yeah, Bethlehem. She was, yeah, they were approaching Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem, we're told. And it was there she died, and it's there that um, we're told in Genesis 35 her tomb was. Rachel's tomb was in Bethlehem. Geographically, where is Bethlehem? In terms of the tribes. South. Hmm? On the south. South. Okay, south. But south of where? 
Now, Jerusalem actually, territorially, was in Benjamin. Benjamin, uh, you look and see on the map, it's actually in Benjamin, Jerusalem. And Bethlehem was to the south, and that puts it squarely in Bethlehem of Judea, of Judah, or Judea. Uh, that's back in the you know, Ephrathah, Benjamin, uh, uh, Jer- ben- Bethlehem, Judea. Okay, and that's where Rachel's tomb was. We're told that in 35 of Genesis. We're told that in 49 of Genesis. Go look it up. So now, Saul's being anointed the king. As he tells, Samuel tells him, you'll reign over the people of the Lord and you'll save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies and this will be the sign to you that Yahweh has anointed you to be prince over your heritage. When you depart from me today, you'll meet two men by what? what where? Rachel's tomb. Rachel's tomb. Okay, we got Rachel's tomb. Where's Rachel's tomb in Genesis? Well, it was in Bethlehem. Where's Bethlehem in Judah? And yet here it says, Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and Zillah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying. Um, So Rachel's tomb is moved. Rachel's tomb is moved. How How did that happen? Well, probably the Benjamites decided to probably dig her up. They said, what in the world does a neighboring tribe have to do with our mother? Our mother should be buried in Benjamin, buried in our territory. And there's another reference, uh, maybe I'm not remembering where it is, or maybe Zella has something to do with the territory that is Ramah. But it's in Ramah that, ben, that Rachel's tomb was. It's in Rhema. There's another reference to that, but I, I, I just I, I know there's a connection, but I'm not thinking of it offhand. But well, at least we know her tomb is in Benjamin, taken out of Bethlehem and moved. And so Rachel's tomb is important to this whole matter of weeping, wouldn't you think? We'll get we'll we'll, we'll deal with that in a moment. Something else about Rhema, Jeremiah chapter forty. Jeremiah chapter forty. And again, I'm getting to the details of exegesis, and maybe that's not wise because we're going to run out of time. But in um, the 40th chapter of Jeremiah, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from where? Ramah. When he took him bound in chains along with the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Ramah has uh, an importance in that that was the place where the captive peoples were brought on the way to be sent to Babylon. So the picture of the people of the southern kingdom in the time of the Babylonian invasion, they're being sent off to Babylon. And what's happening in Jeremiah 31? Well, weeping and lamentation is happening in the prospect of this devastating trauma of the nation's destruction and of the people of the nation being carried off into exile. And so a voice is heard in Ramah. That's where the people are being gathered. People are being assembled in Ramah for the purposes of sending them into exile. What happens then? Lamentation and bitter weeping is the result of that. But then, where does Rachel come in? (laughs) Well, Rachel comes in metaphorically. She comes in metaphorically engaging in the weeping for her children. Again, her children were Joseph, Ephraim, and Benjamin. Ramah is in Benjamin. She's weeping for her children. Now, when you think of Rachel weeping for her children, are there instances in Scripture where 
Rachel and weeping would be um, something that comes to mind. What did Rachel weep over? I'm sorry? I'm sorry. Let me get to this in the morning message. You hear some of this repeated. This is not the stuff that are in pieces. This is stuff that's going to preach on this morning. Is that Rachel wept over her barrenness, didn't she? She said to Jacob, Give me children or I will die. <laughs> Great. What's that? Is that what you said? Yeah, I didn't hear it. That's another thing for the new year. My resolutions for the new year is not only biblical literacy, it's to get a hearing aid. Because I, a lot of things I'm just simply not hearing anymore. It's another resolution for the coming year. But she's weeping over her barrenness. Give me children or I will die. Again, they that sow in tears reap in what? Joy? Did God hear that prayer? Well, after a couple of false starts, she gave to Jacob her maid girl, Bilhah, raised up, uh, I believe it was Dan and uh, Naphtali, were the product of that union. But after Naphtali and Dan came on the scene, and I guess she was you know, Rachel's maid, and so maybe Rachel's kids in a sense, God opened her womb. Biologically, she has a son. She has a son named Joseph. We'll have a lot to say about Joseph in the morning message. You know, he fits in, I think, to this whole scenario in the light of the birth narrative. But uh, she has this son, uh, and the temptation is to go there, but I won't. I'm going to hold off for the morning worship. She has a son, Joseph. And so her tears lead, led to joy, didn't it? Didn't it? But then there was the second child that was born, and, and that was when she wept over her hard labor. Her hard labor that produced a son that ended in her death. That ended in her death. And remember, she's the one who said the child should be named Benoni, which meant son of my sorrow. Rachel weeping for her children. This is a woman that wanted children. She wept in the presence of God for children. And God answered her prayer. And God, though there was many tears, it led to joy. It led to joy. You see where this is going, folks, don't you? Now, Benoni, son of my sorrow. And the maid said to her, don't fear. You're giving birth to another son. You're giving birth to another son, Rachel. Rachel, it's not a time for tears. I'm dying. I'm going to have tears. But it's a time for joy. You're giving birth to a son. Rachel, your prayers have been answered. Your tears have been have, have had their reward. There's a reward for your work. Go back to Jeremiah 31. Keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears, for there's a reward for your work. Yes, this is hard labor. <laughs> This is something that brings tears and ultimately death. Like the death of the innocents. But the aftermath of this is that God is a God who is able. Like in the whole story of Joseph, you meant it for evil. But the Lord has meant it for good. Rachel's child. We get those lessons from Rachel's child. A horrific thing. Innocent blood has been spilt. And it's something that brings bitter tears. But it's the kind of tears that Rachel wept. Because again, Rachel's tears are presented in Jeremiah 31 as really the minority report. It's there. It happens. It's, it's awful in itself. But what does it lead to? 
Keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. There's a reward for your work. The blessing of God will yet come. And the way Matthew structures it, and we're not going to get to go into it in the morning worship, so I'll do it for you now. The way Matthew structures it, he structures it in a way that at the beginning of his gospel and at the ending of his gospel, there's this correlating thing that happens. Uh, I think we see it with respect to, um, remember Emmanuel, God with us? That Emmanuel, God with us, is in chapter 1. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the earth is in chapter 28. And then in the middle you have that passage where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in their midst. I am with you. I am with you at the birth. I am with you in the church. I am with you in the mission to the world. Lo, I am with you. Emmanuel covers the totality of the ministry of Jesus. So there's a Jeremiah emphasis in Matthew's Gospel. The quotation from Jeremiah that you see in 2.17. The quotation from Jeremiah in 27. And a quotation about, not a quotation from Jeremiah, but at least a reference to Jeremiah, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And the surprising thing, Matthew is the only gospel that tells us this. Matthew is the only gospel that quotes Jeremiah, is the only gospel that names Jeremiah, is the only gospel that refers in the the, uh, question of Jesus, who do men say that I am, to Jeremiah. They all say John the Baptist, they all say maybe one of the prophets, but Jeremiah, but Matthew says Jeremiah, I'm sorry, not just one of the prophets, but Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jeremiah is mentioned. There's something of a Jeremiah consciousness in Matthew. Something of a Jeremiah understanding about Jesus that's present in, Jeremiah, in, in, in Matthew. I can't get into all the, the in, 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 implications of that, except to say that you have in chapter 1 in connection with Jeremiah you have the leaders of the nation Herod interestingly enough when the wise men come to Jerusalem it says in verse 3 when Herod heard this he was troubled but not just Herod and all Jerusalem with him and assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people so whatever was going on in Herod's mind it's Connected to the people being also disturbed, roiled, perplexed, troubled, and the chief priests being counselors and all this stuff. And they make their appearance again. They appear here in the shedding of the innocent blood of the children of Bethlehem, and they make their appearance in chapter 27, where innocent blood again is shed. But here it's not the babies of Bethlehem. It's the innocent blood of Jesus. It's the story of Judas the betrayer. When he sees that he was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. You see the point? Is you have the chief priests and the elders that were there in chapter 2, along with Herod. The leaders of the nation conspiring against Jesus, looking to destroy this child. This child cannot live. And now they're back here destroying him, seeking his destruction in crucifixion, having sent Judas, uh, having uh, given 30 pieces of silver to Judas. And Judas now says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. You have the innocent blood of the infants, of the children. You have the innocent blood of Jesus. You have the presence of the leaders of the nation. And then you have a quote from Jeremiah. 
Verse 9, same way it's introduced, then was fulfilled, would have been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, then they took 30 pieces of silver. They're quoting Jeremiah again. Quoting Jeremiah. I'm saying there's a pattern here. And the pattern here is meant to tell us that in the midst of the awfulness of what occurred to the infants, and in the midst of humanity's worst crime imaginable, the crucifixion of the Son of God, God had his reasons, purposes, and plan. You, by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, Peter says, you took him and through wicked hands you crucified him and you slew him. But God raised him up and God set him on the throne. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The whole picture is that God is the God is able to overturn the cruel outrages of human empire represented by the Herods of the world, represented by the chief priests and the elders of the world. And God's able to turn it into salvation. God's able to turn it into blessing. That's the point of it. That's the, that's the language that the Bible speaks. We have to learn that language, folks. We have to learn that language and be sensitive to it when it arises. So use your search engines. <laughs> Ask the right questions. Ask the right questions. And not that you're always going to get the right answers. But ask the right questions. Besides, it's going to leave you at least on the path of looking at other passages of Scripture. You say, hmm, what does that have to do with Rachel? Let's look, about, let's look up Rachel. What does this have to do with Ramah? Let's look up Ramah. You'll find some answers, and you'll be able to piece it together. And in do, so doing, we will be learning to speak Bibliese, or Bibliese. We will be learning to speak the language of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time to, to investigate these challenging passages, passages of Scripture. And we're thankful, Lord, that there is a reward for our labors when we do this. We're thankful that you are the God who gives rewards to your people, not because we're worthy of them, but because you're a God of grace and you're a God that is able to turn our mourning into dancing. You're able to take away the heavy heart and, and, uh, and give, um, give consolation where distress and trouble once reigned. We ask you, Lord, to be pleased now to bless us as we greet one another this morning, as we enter into the morning hour of worship. And we'd ask that you'd hear our prayers and you would be with us as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.